Today I want to talk about God's discipline. And we don't understand pain sometimes, let alone God being supposedly responsible for, if not using, pain in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, which starts with looking at Jesus, because uh, Jesus doesn't ask us to go anywhere that he hasn't been first. And so verse 2, middle of verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame. So the cross was a very painful way of dying, and it was a very shameful way of dying. You were the lowest of the lowest if you would be sentenced to crucifixion. And uh, it was one of the most painful deaths you could suffer. And so both at the level of pain and shame, Jesus went there. And uh, he rose from the dead and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you go all the way from the worst we could imagine in our broken, cruel, painful world right to the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, it says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so here's the point. Consider him. He's our example. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't want you to lose heart, the writer of Hebrews says. I don't want you to grow weary. I didn't include the next verse, but he goes on to talk about some of the persecutions. He said, you haven't exactly died yet for standing for Christ. But he said, let me give you another perspective as well. Verse 5. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, and then he'll quote from Proverbs 3. I absolutely love Proverbs 3 except for these two verses. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. There it is again. Don't lose heart. Because the Lord disciplines the one he's frustrated with. Now, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Just a few weeks ago, uh, one of our Navy SEALs uh, in training uh, died under the rigors of that training. It caused quite a bit of controversy. I know they're re-looking at some of the standards for, for the brutal training that Navy SEALs receive. Uh, but in response, a Naval SEAL trainer, his name is Jocko Willink, about three weeks ago, uh, published an article. He said, I spent 20 years in the SEAL teams, and I am personally guilty, he says, of conducting, directing, and overseeing vast amounts of brutal training. He said, the SEALs were always sleep-deprived and dehydrated, and the environment was always too hot or too cold or too wet or too dry, and everybody got scrapes and cuts and bruises and sprained ankles, strained knees, injured backs and shoulders. These were regular things. And unfortunately, sometimes in rare cases, SEAL candidates died during their training. And while we did everything, he wrote, while we did everything in our power to mitigate the risk of injury or death during training, he said, we did nothing to mitigate the suffering. Don't you love that? 
statement. He said, we, did, we, we mitigated the risks of death, but we did nothing to mitigate suffering. And he says, it's not because I'm some kind of brutal, sadistic trainer. No, I made the training brutal, brutal because I cared about my fellow SEALs more than anything else in the world. And he says two things I wanted to happen. First of all, I wanted them to be ready. I wanted them to be ready. I wanted them to be ready to be eminently prepared mentally and physically for the most horrible of human endeavors, and that is war. They needed to be prepared for the greatest horrors we experience as human beings, which we experience in war. They needed to be ready, and they needed to be tested, he said, to make sure every SEAL in a platoon had the intrinsic fortitude, the courage to stand by their teammates, even when they were facing the most nightmarish of conditions. They couldn't wimp out. For the sake of their team members, they had to stay in the battle, and they had to have courage, and courage can only be shaped and tested through the brutal training. He said, I knew, and all SEALs know, that brutal training keeps our brothers alive in the battlefield. That is who the SEAL teams are. Well, whether you agree with their level of brutality in SEAL training or not, this is, in essence, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to Christians who are facing opposition and pain and persecution. And uh, he's, he's saying, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't lose heart when he rebukes you. When, 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 he, when he does things so that you really will be ready for those people in your life who are really going to need you. And you're going to be there. You're not just going to grow faint and lose heart. And you're going to be ready to finish Jesus' mission in the world no matter what it costs you. Physically, financially, relationally. No matter what. You need to be ready and you need to be tested. And this, he's, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is what Jesus has in mind. Now, there are some, I couldn't help but think about some of the very self defeating reactions to pain we can have because who likes pain I don't it's painful even to preach these this short series of messages on pain but I want to tell you um, there, there are some ways in which we can respond very incorrectly to pain because pain lies to us for instance God doesn't love me sometimes sometimes we feel like God just that my pain just must mean he doesn't love me. I mean, how could he love me if he let this happen to me? And the answer from God's point of view is, no, I want you ready for the mission. I want you ready for the people in your life who really need you. And I need you to stay faithful to the cause and not lose heart. This has nothing to do with whether I love you or not. Or some of us, now, some of us maybe have been tempted to go past God must not love me to maybe there is no God. I mean, there is no God if he lets me hurt. I've known people who have gone that way. That if he lets me hurt, I mean, I just can't put it together. Maybe there is no God at all. Maybe we just are the random products of the blind forces of the universe. 
And in atheism, maybe there is nothing but nihilism and despair and no grounds for why anything should be any better than it is. It's kind of like throwing your hands. And I, I don't speak disrespectfully if you've battled with atheism, but it is like throwing your hands in the air. And it leaves you with more questions than believing in a loving God leaves you in spite of pain. Or if it's not God doesn't love me and there is no God if he lets me hurt, maybe some, sometimes we just react to pain in a self-destructive way by just saying, you know, I've had it. The pain isn't worth it. I'm going my own way. This is Jesus' way. He doesn't seem to be helping me with some of my pain, so I'm just going another way. And so you go your own way. You backslide, you lose your faith, you decide you're gonna take life into your own hands. You begin to indulge in escapism. You start self-medicating in all kinds of destructive, sinful ways, whether it be drugs or alcohol or sexual exploits or rebellion or God avoidance or giving place to irrational anger. My God, there are so many ways in which we can respond to pain in very self-destructive ways when we take matters into our own hands. But I want to give you an and instead, instead of that, instead of doubting God's love, instead of doubting God's existence, instead of taking life into your own hands, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. So he's picking up right from where we left off after he quotes Proverbs 3 and says, I'm, I'm saying this so you don't lose heart. He said, endure hardship as a discipline. That's a four-word four sentence, and I hate three of those words. I don't mind the word as. <laughs> Helpful word at times. But discipline, mm -mm. And when we started this series a couple weeks ago, I said hardship is not a word any of us like. And to the degree we don't like hardship, we like the word endure even less. I mean, endure hardship. Doesn't sound very victorious to me. What a sentence. Endure hardship as discipline. God is putting you through, not is putting you through basic training plus. He's disciplining you. Then he goes on to say, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And we have seen some children who have not been disciplined by their parents. And they're pretty out of control. In fact, psychologists tell us now, this isn't, isn't Christian psychology, this is commonly accepted, that children who grow up without boundaries and without discipline end up really angry, and ironically, they feel more unloved than children who have discipline and boundaries imposed on their lives. And he says, God is like a parent. He's disciplining you. And so the next verse, they, verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. This is talking about your parents. He said, they disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our, would you say that word out loud with me? Good. Against those words, endure, hardship, discipline, we have this massive word, good. And I want to tell you in the end, because of Jesus, good's going to outweigh everything else. He endured the cross, but good outweighed. Resurrection outweighed death. 
good outweighs everything. Why? In order, here's the good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So three powerful words in those two verses. Holiness, righteousness, and peace. That somehow Jesus is able to shape his life even deeper in us. And that's why he disciplines us. Now, I think a few of you have heard um, me about my uncles. My mom had three brothers. I was born in Winnipeg, and they ran these huge farms about 100 miles west of Winnipeg out in the Canadian prairies. And so when I was a little kid, we'd take that trip out to, quote-unquote, the farm, and we'd visit my uncles, and we'd be there sometimes for Christmas, sometimes for New Year's, sometimes for Thanksgiving, sometimes for... Canada's version of July 4th, I mean, and, and other times in the summer, we'd go and visit my uncles, and, and my uncles were great guys. I, I looked up to them a lot. In fact, I probably looked up to them too much when I was five years old, because at one family gathering out on the farm, my uncle, my three uncles took me aside. I was five years old. They called me Jimmy back then. They said, Jimmy, let me tell you what you should do the next time your mother asks you to do something. So my mother was their sister, of course. They said, the next time your mom, and I don't know how long, it, I don't remember how long it took, except I seemed to catch on pretty quickly. They said, next time your mom comes in the room and asks you to do something, you, you do this. You stomp your foot and you say, no! <laughs> you know the end of that story. What's wrong? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to repeat a story. Yeah, sure enough, my mom comes walking in the room a few minutes later. And, and she said, Jimmy, come wash your hands. We're going to eat dinner. And I looked at her. I stomped my foot. I said, no. And what followed was not pretty at all. <laughs> um, I've had to suppress the memories, unfortunately. <laughs> Except that my mom, for years later, would say, I don't know who should have got punished that day, Jimmy or my three brothers. But you know what? In my family, uh, respect, I mean, we could be honest. We could even be upset. But if we were disrespectful, that was, that was a no-no. You never spoke disrespectfully to an adult. And I'm grateful. Now, you know, I'm grateful that I had a mom who just would not put up with that. I mean, otherwise, I could have been a spoiled, I could have grown up some kind of spoiled brat. I could have, who knows what I would, you know, it, it's part of our formation is parents who put boundaries around us and discipline us. And it hurts for a little while. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. That's why I've repressed that memory. But, but it was painful. But you know what? It produces a harvest of righteousness. It makes you a better person. And this is how he's looking at the kind of pain that the believers here in the first century were experiencing, some of it because of persecution. And you go, huh. you, mean, you mean God's active in shaping me, informing me through this. But I love how Fred Smith, who founded FedEx, put it. 
I don't think God's interested in our success. He is interested in our maturity. Phew. So, so. If that is all true, let me first say, stay confident in God's love for you. This has nothing to do. You know, I hurt a little bit, so God must not love me. That's a very one-dimensional way of looking to a God who has given you new birth. When you come to Christ, when you trust what he did, when he died on the cross, when he took your sin on himself, paid the penalty for you, when you, when you trust him, when you repent of your sin, when you repent of going your own way and turn to him, Jesus said, entering my kingdom, submitting your life to me now, is like being born all over again inside. It's new birth. And after you're born, what needs to happen next? You need to grow up. And so, and so when new birth comes, first of all, we begin to grow. And our Heavenly Father does love us enough. He's concerned enough that things like righteousness and peace and holiness come to mark our lives. And He will allow pain to at times become our teacher. But don't doubt that God loves you. Stay confident in God's love for you. And let hardships, no matter the cause, whether it be persecution, whether it be just you're sick, God's not answering your prayer yet. It's just, I I don't understand some of this. Um, You know, somebody's broken your heart. Somebody you should have trusted at work has stabbed you in the back and taken off with the company and you're left destitute. I mean, all the myriad of things that can make us hurt in life. There is a way in God which God asks us to reframe it all and, and to say, Lord Jesus, as much as, as I ate this pain and I may even resent it, Lord Jesus, somehow, Lord, would you just deepen me in your holiness and your righteousness? Somebody who with her husband recently in another part of the country, uh, I was in contact with them and and she just, their lives had just been turned upside down. But, but she said, it's like, it's like we're in this bubble of peace. It's like there's just something of God's grace and presence. They're, they're going deeper to walk instead of just spitting back in God's face because he let you hurt. There's just something deepening in them. And they're learning about the peace of God. And they're learning about how to be holier and how to grow in the Lord. And... We need to reframe pain. It needs to say, Lord, Lord, keep being that great heavenly father to me, that great spiritual parent, and help me. I, I do know, and let me just say this in a cautionary way, I know people who struggle for years with chronic pain or chronic trials in their lives. Sometimes they'll have well-being other Christians come to them and say, oh, God must really be pre- preparing you for something great because he's putting you through such hard training here. Or, or, or even looking at you and saying, boy, God must really be trying to make you holy. You know what? You don't need to explain people's pain to them. That just hurts. You know, when I'm really hurt and someone says to me, well, God must just be growing you up, huh? They're technically right, except I want to spit back. And say, that doesn't make me feel good at all. Be very, very careful what you say to people when they're really hurting. It's not a time for, well, God's trying to grow you up, you know. 
There may be a time to encourage them not to lose heart, but you do that by always pressing them back towards Jesus. Because here's the last thing I want to say. I just believe we need to make Jesus' closeness our life pursuit instead of pain avoidance. In the Western world, we're pretty accustomed to pain avoidance, and I try to avoid pain myself. I wasn't feeling great this week, and so I think I took a Tylenol, and uh, I'm really into pain avoidance, and I prayed too. But I want to tell you, um, nothing wrong with pain avoidance, but when pain avoidance becomes the bottom line in our life, when it becomes our life pursuit rather than Jesus' closeness, let me tell you, pick Jesus' closeness every day of the week. We want to be close to him. And he's coming back again. He has you in his hand if you belong to him. He has your back. He's for you and he's not against you. And he, yes, he's growing you up. And yes, he's putting you through some brutal, brutal training. He's building maturity and character in your life. That's all true. But even if you can't connect even those dots, we just stay close to him. Because let's read those first verses we started with as we close. For the joy set before him, Jesus, he did endure the cross. And he scorned at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne. When you're facing the scourging, the beatings, the hanging by nails from a cross for hours on end, and people mocking you and making fun of you for those hours on end, there's not much joy that's set before you. But Jesus did it for the joy set before him. What was that? Because he was purchasing with his blood a church. He was purchasing you and me that could walk in relationship with him. Oh, you're purchased by the blood of Jesus. He loves you and for the joy set before him, that joy of obeying his heavenly father, no matter what his heavenly father required of him, and that joy of knowing you and me, that joy of you and I being able to experience Jesus' closeness. This is, this is what, why he endured the cross. And so consider him the writer of Hebrews said, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Above all, we can't lose heart. We've got to be closer to the heart of Jesus. But we can't lose our hearts. And I want to say, you don't need to lose your heart. You don't need to lose heart if you stay close to the heart of Jesus. I can't say when your pain will end. I can't say you'll ever understand the purpose of it completely. But holiness and righteousness and peace and above all, being close to Jesus' heart so we don't lose heart. So I pray for you today. Will you stand with me, please?